This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. On this episode, we will be speaking with Robert Devine, who used to be the former general counsel of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and the former acting director of the USCIS. Um, I think this today's uh, episode is very timely given uh, the recent happenings in, uh, uh, in the EB-5 world, both the bearing uh, lawsuit um, in California federal court, as well as the expiration of the program that looks like to be imminent this week on the 30th of uh, June. Uh, with that, maybe um, um, just give us a, a, a minute uh, and, and kind of explain what the two recent happenings were in the last week. Okay, well, the the biggest picture item <clears throat> is that um, the law that relates to or makes possible regional centers and the indirect investment that they make possible under the law is a temporary law, and it expires on June 30th. And everybody hoped and expected that law to be renewed in the Senate as it has been done about 25 times since it was first enacted in an appropriations bill, a funding bill in, uh, what, 1992. And last week on Friday, an effort to get that renewed in the Senate, part of the United States Congress, failed. And um, it's clear that it is not going to get renewed before June 30, so we are going to see an expiration of that law. We certainly hope that the law will be renewed soon, uh, even in the next coming weeks, and definitely within the next few months. Um, So it's important to understand what that regional center law does and doesn't do. there, before that law was enacted, there was the EB-5 program, and it still exists, and it will continue even after this law expires. So that's what we frequently call the direct EB-5 program, and it involves uh, the investor placing his or her capital into what we call a new commercial enterprise, a company, that uses that money to develop some project that uh, a business and the investor can claim credit for uh, the 10 required jobs only from the direct full-time operational jobs of that business. It's a very limited program and people need to really understand how limited that is. And it's not just that uh, oh, oh, excuse me. The, yeah, the, the regional center program, the regional center law was an overlay on top of that that added some options that don't exist in the direct program. Um, the idea was to foster pooled investment in kind of specific areas that might really need development. And so Congress said, we're going to create this thing called regional centers and 
I think the idea was that these centers could kind of foster uh, the idea of using foreign investment in their development programs and and maybe help um, just kind of get the idea going and also to make sure that the people who might try to attract the investment would have an idea, have an understanding of what's required and wouldn't go spinning up the world, drawing in investors to something that didn't even qualify under the rules. So there has to be this regional center involved as a what we call a sponsor, uh, but they're not really the, they don't have to be the entity that's raising the money. That's the new commercial enterprise. And the new commercial enterprise then can raise the money, must be equity investment, and then that entity under the regional center program, not normally, not under the direct program, but under the regional center program, that entity can turn around and make a business of putting that money into some other company that will use the money to do some economic activity, develop something, create jobs. And so that indirectness of the investment is part of what the regional center law makes possible. The other thing that law makes possible is that the investors get to claim credit, not just for the operational direct jobs that are employed by the project after it gets completed, but that company, I mean, the, the investors can claim credit also for the indirect jobs that result from that. And, and these are kind of the trickle up and trickle down jobs that we think of when uh, we think of economists uh, estimating how many jobs a new factory in a, in a city might add to the, the economy, not just the people working in the factory, but the people who work in the restaurant down the street and, and the people who work in the steel factories that supply the, the construction and whatever. And so being able to count those jobs makes it easier to have enough jobs created to give credit to the EB-5 investors. And uh, in the last 10 years or so, the Immigration Service even has acknowledged and given credit for the jobs that are the impact from construction expenditures. So just building something can create enough jobs to take care of the job creation requirement for the investors, even if the whole thing failed as a business, never even fully opened. They, there could be enough jobs there. Of course, the investors might lose all their money, but they might be able to keep their green card. So that's been a, a big part of the allure of the regional center program, that there's kind of immigration safety in these construction projects, uh, even if they're not operationally successful. So that's what's possible by the regional center program. So when the regional center program expires on Wednesday, investments into that kind of thing that come in indirectly and that give credit for indirect jobs like construction and trickle up and down uh, related to the operations, those can't happen anymore. Those can't be credited, those can't count. That kind of investment cannot be the basis of a filing until that regional center law gets renewed. So that's what's going on with the expiration. That's the effect of the expiration of that law. There's also an effect on 
existing investors, uh, which I haven't talked about. If you want me to go ahead, I will. Yeah, Robert. So I think um, our, our listeners are going to want to you know go into detail and talk about what what all that means. But just to rehash, the the, the 1990 law, which was came as part of the Comprehensive Immigration Reform and, and Immigration Act of 1990, that created the EB-5 program, and that program is permanent. The 1993 law, which was the Regional Center Pilot Program, is what sunsetted and is expiring on June 30th, unless Congress, when they come back in session, negotiate and and renew that law. Um, um, I know, you know, obviously everyone in the EB-5 industry knows you. You're the kind of the godfather of uh, of, uh, of EB-5. But um, I think what, what would be interesting is if you could just kind of take a step back and for some of our, our audience that may be new to EB-5, explain your experience at your current law firm and then your experience when you worked at the USCIS. I think that would be helpful, and then we can jump into some of the questions. Okay. So I started practicing immigration law in 1986, right as... President Reagan signed the law that created uh, amnesty for about three and a half million people and required the I-9 form that every employer has to fill out every time they file, hire somebody to make sure they're legal and all that. And uh, so that's how that was a long time ago, 35 years ago. Um, and I wrote a book on immigration law that I started writing in maybe 1991 or two, finished it three years later, and have it's it's in its 15th edition. Uh, it's a treatise on all aspects of U.S. immigration law that is used by probably mainly lawyers, but all kinds of other people in the United States. And uh, and in 19 in 2004. I was appointed by President George W. Bush to be uh, the chief counsel of USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which was uh, the part of the new Department of Homeland Security and the, the component of the old Immigration and Naturalization Service um, that adjudicates immigration benefits. It's not the people who guard the border or who kick people out who we find illegally here. It's the people who decide who can come legally, become a citizen, and get certain visas. So I was appointed, I was the first person appointed to that role. And for a while, uh, after a year or so, the, the director got sent off to be the uh, ambassador to Spain after the train bombings. They needed a steady hand there. Uh, and. He left me in charge uh, as the acting director of USCIS for a while until the next person could get um, appointed and confirmed by the Senate. Went back to being chief counsel and then uh, returned to my practice at Baker Donaldson uh, in 2000, late 2006. Since then, um, well, I guess at that time, while I was in the, the government, uh, we did some things that kind of helped revive the EB-5 program, which had really fallen into disuse. Uh, and so I was able to then, as I came back out of the government, uh, be involved in kind of helping to steer the development of the program. Um, I guess one of the main things I was able to do was to kind of negotiate and, and uh, help structure or encourage the structuring of the process by which 
developers of projects can get approval of their projects as an exemplar uh, so that they can confidently go out and raise money from um, foreign investors who know that this project can be approved and, and don't have to wonder if it's going to be approvable. So um, I've represented, I, I guess I've helped syndicate uh, a few hundred EB-5 offerings uh, for developers and regional centers and, and new commercial enterprises and have also represented, I don't know, some many hundreds or thousands, I don't know, of EB-5 investors in, in their uh, pursuit of immigration based on their investment. So I've been uh, very involved, and I guess I'm also kind of known as a, a cleanup person. Uh, whenever there's a big mess, somehow it seems like they end up in my direction, and I, I'm, I'm crazy enough to take them on a lot of times, I guess. And I kind of like lawyering the hard cases, and, uh, and we've had a lot of, of – uh, challenge in trying to salvage some messed up situations and uh, really enjoy doing that. <laughs> so, and finally, uh, as my law firm, I lead the immigration group at Baker Donaldson. It's a law firm uh, that mainly has a footprint in the southeastern United States all over that. We have about 20, more than 20 offices. and. Uh, uh, including Washington, D.C., where we have kind of a lobby shop. And uh, that's the deal. Well, great, uh, Robert. It's it's wonderful to have you. I think it, it's helpful for our audience to get the insights, not just from someone that's been involved in EB-5 35-plus years, um, but someone that has been on the inside, on the USCIS side, because there's just not a lot of information out there, how the USCIS operates, how do they adjudicate, what they look at, what they think, and how – you know, how that whole process uh, kind of works. Um, if you don't mind, maybe jumping in uh, now to the legislative side, outside of the executive agency, what happened in the Senate last week where, where the program essentially is, is expiring? Yeah, I think it's helpful to kind of see the forces involved in the, the EB-5 industry. Um, I think most senators and congressmen have a generally favorable disposition toward EB-5. There's been a lot of positive economic impact all over the United States because of this program. There are a few senators and a few congressmen who have an attitude about selling green cards and may not be in favor of it. But on the whole, I think there's general positive sentiment, and it's, it, it's, it's not so much about whether the EB-5 Regional Center Program is going to be extended but what are under what conditions is that going to happen? And um, the recent effort uh, was really championed by the Industry Association of Regional Centers called IIUSA. Uh, I guess that was Invest in the USA, uh, made into an acronym. So you can go to www.iiusa.com and see. Dot org, I think, actually. Or dot org, thank you, yes, dot org. Um, and see, uh, you know, what they're promoting and all that. But it, I was the vice president, the elected vice president of IUSA for seven years. And uh, so I have a sense of, you know, what that organization is and does. And it's, it's a wonderful organization. It represents a wide range of regional centers who are, 
you know, from all over the country, um, big money center, small, rural, everything in between. Um, and I would say that organization has just been uh, focused on getting the program, getting the regional center legislation renewed, whatever it takes. And what it appeared to take was to satisfy two key senators who had clearly absolute requirements and the apparent ability to potentially block any legislation that didn't meet their demands. And their demands were basically uh, no changes to the essential program of how much money is invested and where and all of that. It was really more about what they called integrity measures, which is um, uh, a bunch of requirements on regional centers and new commercial enterprises and developers to make clear offerings about their projects and to handle the money properly and uh, to avoid some of the scandals that we've seen and heard of uh, that are really unfortunate where somebody got their hands on a whole bunch of people's money and misused it, ran off with it, whatever. And, uh, and so these senators, including Senator Leahy from Vermont, who was super embarrassed by the, what all the stuff that happened at the Jay Peak project and the misappropriation and this commingling and mismanagement of money. Uh, and then um, Senator Grassley from Iowa, who I'd say probably has, uh, you know, as many strong feelings about scandal as anybody you could ever see. He's got a whole operation of the Senate staff that's focused on kind of exposing scandals in and associated with the government. And he was tired of hearing about those associated with the EB-5 program. So those two guys got together. They're actually good friends. One's a Republican, one's a Democrat. Um, I can remember testifying in front of them several years ago, many, well, about 2011, I think it was. And, uh, and they had an amazing relationship that was reflected in that, that, that hearing uh, where they, they, they've traveled together, their families or friends. And, uh, but they, they got together on this, and they feel strongly about it. And, uh, you know, the industry had input with them about trying to make some tweaks to what I thought were kind of unreasonable demands about these integrity measures. Got it a little better, and uh, that was that was the law that was proposed. On the other side of the political, or it's not exactly political, but industry-oriented uh, balance of power is uh, a group of regional centers that are mainly based in big money centers, and particularly New York. But it's not only that, and, and I can't just completely characterize this group as just only big money centers. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's the EB-5. Is it Immigrant Coalition or Investor Coalition? I guess it's, what does IC actually stand for? EB-5IC, and I forget what the IC. Investors Coalition, I believe. Maybe so. Investors Coalition, Those folks basically wanted to change the, the balance, change the, uh, some key pieces of how the program works 
uh, and they wanted a, what we would call a grand bargain, a new balance of, of how much is invested uh, and where the investment can be lower. And so this is about, you know, we know that there's the, there was the $500,000 limit or, or low required amount and, and a million uh, before. Then after new regulations were promulgated in 2019, it changed to 900,000 and, and 1.8 million, double again. And that's probably the biggest sticking point. The fact that if you can't meet the requirement of a targeted employment area that allows the lower level of investment, then you have to get people who are willing to invest twice that amount. And that those folks see as too prohibitive, that it's just too much more than the minimum investment and it gives too much incentive for people to invest in the not to invest in the targeted employment areas and not enough incentive to invest in other places and they felt that's just out of balance and um, that's the main thing uh, and so, so I don't know that they were as focused on trying to reduce the 900,000 back toward 500,000. I think they would be happy for that. But I think more important to them is what's the gap between 900,000 and the next level. And they were looking for something more like, you know, they'd love it for it to be like 950,000 or a million or 1.2 million, not, you know, 1.8 million. Um, mm -hmm. And then they wanted also to, to change the rules to, to open up what could be considered a targeted employment area. The 2019 regulations had narrowed uh, what could be considered targeted employment area. Instead of being uh, susceptible to a state designating some, you know, snake-like area that can include, uh, you know, this, this location of the project here and then go grab some areas of high unemployment over here and connect them to something that could have a uh, combined uh, weighted average of 150% of the national average of unemployment. Um, the, the new regulations had changed that and narrowed them to where you could only have a census tract of where the project was plus any combination of census tracts that directly touch that one census tract. So think of kind of a bullseye. And that's very narrow and it wouldn't include, for instance, Midtown Manhattan uh, and the center cities of, of many places where big development happens. So, um, I mean, in a, but it does, it would consider, you know, all of the Bronx, as I understand it, to be high unemployment areas but that wasn't enough. And so these folks wanted to do something to make that broader and or narrow the gap between the lower and the higher amount for EB-5 investment. I think they also had hopes of trying to get uh, a more visa numbers available for this program, which everybody wants. Everybody wants that. But you know, it, that's just really not realistic. It hasn't been realistic in the political environment. Um, and I don't believe it, it is realistic going forward anytime soon. So I think they would have 
let go of that. So it's really about, uh, you know, big city versus kind of rural and other uh, on this issue. And basically what this came down to in the Senate was that one way or another, the, the parties that were wanting something, a rebalancing of the, uh, of the investment amounts and so forth, uh, were able to get the bill stopped. Uh, it, it, it took a very limited procedure to try to get this bill to the floor because it wasn't able to be attached to some other must-pass legislation. So they were able to set up a voice vote, uh, which they called uh, a hotline process in the Senate, uh, where if there's anybody, any senator who objects to it, then uh, it will be killed. And uh, in this particular instance, uh, one senator from South Carolina objected. If it hadn't been him, it might have been somebody else. I don't think it's such a big deal exactly who it was. Uh, but it happened, and, and I think that basically reflected that these folks are serious enough about it that they're willing to take the risk that the program doesn't get extended to, to, to wait on a better deal than what they were about to get. I hope that they you know, they didn't mess up everybody by doing that, but I think they're committed to trying to get something renewed. And I don't, I really think they believe that they're going to get, we will still get a renewal because otherwise a bunch of people who already invested are going to get screwed. So Robert, a lot of these uh, negotiations, so you're saying the negotiations are going to hopefully continue past June 30th and there'll hopefully be some kind of reauthorization, but we just don't know what that will entail yet. That's right. I mean, I think, I think what they've basically done through what happened uh, Friday is they've shown they can keep, they can and are willing to stop anything from happening if they don't get more of what they want. And so the other side, that would be kind of the IIUSA side. It's not just them, but that's Senators Grassley and, and Leahy. If they, they want to get it renewed, they're going to have to come back to the table and meet a little bit more in the middle. So, you know, is it going to be 900,000 and 1.3 million, 1.2 million, 1.1 million? What, where, you know, and, and what will those numbers be? It could be 750 and 850. Okay, so it's possible that the it's possible that the nine hundred could also be reduced as well. It's very it's possible. Okay. Um, I I personally doubt that's going to happen, but okay. it could. Robert, it's it's very interesting. You know, I've had people tell me last week when these negotiations were going on that this bill that Senator Grassley and Leahy, which is a bipartisan bill, had sponsored, that this was somehow a Republican bill. And the Democrats would never pass that. But we all know, I mean, from, from EB-5, from history, Senator Leahy has been one of the biggest champions of EB-5. In fact, Ted Kennedy, I think, was one of the original um, champions of, of EB-5. But this has been the bipartisan bill. It was, it was co-sponsored by Senator Leahy and Grassley and, you know, co-sponsored, actually, by Senator Coons, who's, you know, a good friend of President Biden and replaced President Biden as a senator from, from Delaware. And, you know, really, uh, it's been kind of the, the old age-old uh, battle between the small states versus the, you know, more populous states. And uh, interestingly enough, Senator Graham, who's a Republican, is the one that blocked the bill. Uh, and as you mentioned, if he hadn't, Senator Schumer from New York would have probably blocked it. But, but it's interesting. If you could just talk about, is this a Republican bill? Is it a Democrat bill? Which 
I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there, and I, I believe it's it's completely bipartisan. There's different things in play, but I'd love to hear your point of view on it. Well, you know, immigration itself is not really a partisan thing in the United States in a way that some other issues are. Um, immigration, I mean, there are Republicans and Democrats who are more favorable about immigration than others in either of their party, and then there are some other. It's, it's more, uh, I would say, immigration is more driven along populist and other positions, and there are what I would call populists in both the Democrat and the Republican Party. And um, <clears throat> I think it's, you know, the, the political sentiment against immigration has to do with um, economic fear. Um, I think most people who are in favor of limiting immigration are are driven by economic fear, um, a sense of protecting their own and their fellows' opportunities, and some, I would say probably also some cultural fear that whatever kind of culture we have in the United States is going to be eroded or diluted by the entry of a whole bunch of people we don't know about, um, and that kind of thing. And, um, and I think it's important not to denigrate people who have those feelings, um, but try to speak to, you know, the realities. I mean, there are people who feel similarly about trade bills, about reducing tariffs and other limits on trade. I mean, they're just afraid that open trade is going to end up costing them jobs. And there's some reason, you know, there, there's a basis for their concern. I mean, there are some sophisticated realities that these trade, uh, reducing trade restrictions actually increase uh, job opportunities in the United States and everywhere. But it's complicated, and it's hard for uh, people to get their minds around the realities. And it's also very difficult to prove to somebody in either of those areas, trade, immigration, that if we do this, the, the costs and the benefits of that will be X because it's too complicated to hold everything in, in uh, a stasis, hold everything else you know, in place to see what changing one thing or another in these areas would cause. So people, you can find studies that kind of say, oh, increasing immigration will make things worse worse and other things studies show increasing immigration makes things better uh, eb5 is a little different uh, as an aspect of immigration i mean i think it's um, it's obviously easier to say that increasing and maintaining eb5 immigration actually increases job opportunities in the united states it's the very basis of the program that you have to do something that creates u.s jobs uh, so that's, that gives it uh, kind of a special allure and reduces the objections that many other types of immigration have. But look, there are people who just politically feel there should be no more immigration than there already is and that it should be restricted and that's just how they feel and that's not going to change no matter what anybody says. So it is very difficult to get more numbers. I think trying to at least keep the numbers that EB-5 has, which they're still there. Nobody took away any EB-5 numbers 
when this regional center legislation will expire Wednesday. The numbers are still there. They just can't be used by people who are using these indirect arrangements for their investment. Um, one of the conversations that I've been having all week long with prospective investors is what's going to happen during this gray area after June 30th. Um, is USCIS still going to accept applications and perhaps hold them, hold them in abeyance, or are they going to stop accepting applications altogether? And even on top of that, what is the price that they're going to be accepting investments at? So do you have any insight or maybe just an opinion on what could happen with that? Okay, first, let's... Let's hold off on the price discussion because to really get into that, we need to go we into that litigation, litigation that we really haven't started right. the conversation about. But aside from that, uh, after June 30th, as far as new filings for immigrants, um, the only filings that can be made uh, for, for Im Im immigrant investors is for people who are investing in a company whose federal ID number is going to be on the paycheck of the 10 operational full-time jobs that that business will operationally create when it is completed. Um, that's a very narrow thing. And, uh, you know, most of the projects that have been out there would not qualify under that arrangement. There may be some people who are going to try to tweak that and make some, turn some projects or, or some spots into direct offerings. Um, but that's the only thing that can be done as far as new investment until this regional center legislation gets renewed. Now, what happens about existing investors is, uh, is really to be seen. I mean, technically, there is no, for anybody who invested based on a regional center, there is no law that allows them to proceed in their path toward immigration. Uh, and so there can be no approvals of anything after, uh, after Wednesday. Now, we need to make clear the Immigration Service, I think appropriately has, in, in previous situations where this has kind of come up very briefly, they have said that expiration of this regional center law does not mess up people who already got in here based on an EB-5 investment. So if you if you got a green card based on EB-5, even though it's conditional and you have to file your 829 to keep it, your I-829, uh, that doesn't get affected. And that would be ridiculous to, to say that somebody who already actually immigrated has to then leave because the law that supported it was is not approved. So we're not talking about that. But anybody who didn't actually get here and get, you know, the, the stamp in their passport on that visa or get approved for adjustment of status and get that green card, uh, they're, they're dead in the tracks for now until the law gets renewed. Now, the Immigration Service in the past has acknowledged, you know, we're not going to just deny everything that's sitting here. And, you know, waiting for us to adjudicate. We're not going to go revoking the things we already approved that people haven't been able to use yet uh, to get in here. We're just going to hold all that stuff. And they, they call it hold it in abeyance and just sit on it and not do anything with it. And I think actually maybe if somebody has adjustment pending, they may still let them renew their work and travel documents. 
um, but not get approval of their green card. And I think the State Department, I've got a lot of clients who were about to have interviews in China, you know, to, to get a, a visa. And um, I'm expecting that after Wednesday, anybody who had an interview after Wednesday, they're going to have, they're going to cancel their interview. They might, you know, it's conceivable a consulate could go ahead and have an interview, uh, but not issue the visa. I do not believe they're legally capable of issuing a visa to those people. So that's going to be the situation for a while. Um, and, and there's no rule, there's nothing super clear about how long USCIS would tolerate and, and preserve kind of the status quo while giving Congress a chance to finish getting this done. But Senator Schumer said last week in the Senate, as all of this craziness was going down, he said he had checked with USCIS and, he, and they had said to him that they were not going to go denying and revoking and they were going to hold things in abeyance, given the, the Congress time to do something. I think that's probably right, um, and nobody knows how long that will be. I would say if it gets past September 30th, then everybody's going to need to going to be getting more nervous. At some point, USDS could pull the trigger and say, "We can't keep these things in abeyance forever," and Congress is just going to have to act or not. But I think they they even might take longer than September 30, and probably as long as it takes to get a budget bill passed for the, the whole federal government, which expires at present on September 30. And there's a you know, if, if EB-5 can't be renewed through some other congressional mechanism before then, then we would think that somebody might be able to throw into the budget bill, as has always happened in the past, a little thing that says, and EB-5 is extended, along with all the other hundred, you know, hundreds of things that expire on the same day that the budget does. So until... Congress passes some kind of omnibus funding legislation that that funds the government for another year, I would be very surprised to see USCS say, oh, time's up, you know, game over, denials and rejections. You know, Robert, um, I think a lot of people have a misconception and even some very experienced immigration lawyers, they just assume that, you know, I don't know where, where they got the sense, that you know, the, even though if, if Congress couldn't agree, even if in the Senate they couldn't agree on a bill, they would just kick the can down the road. And you know, some very experienced immigration lawyers were saying this: "Oh, this will get kicked down the road." And you know, that, I think that was a big misconception because you know, knowing you know, kind of the negotiations between Grassley and Leahy, they had stripped this bill from the continuing resolution as part of the budget. It's a, in its own standalone bill. That way, if it didn't, you know, if the bill wasn't negotiated, the program would expire. And then the other misconception I think a lot of immigration lawyers uh, have, and they've been kind of passing this message on to investors, is that, oh, you know, even in the past when the program had lapsed because the budget hadn't been approved or, you know, the, you know, the, the government shut down for eight days, you know, the USCIS was still taking these applications and processing them. But, you know, maybe if you don't mind just talking about the difference between a program sunset, which we're facing on Wednesday, to the short-term, you know, the 21 short-term reauthorizations that we've had, and even when the government shut down, they were still processing. What is kind of the difference between that and then, you know, talk about strategically why they, you know, kind of took it out of the continuing resolution. Okay. And one thing I didn't say or address is whether USCS is likely to continue to accept new I-526 petitions 
and maybe adjustment of status applications now, uh, after Wednesday, for regional center-based investments. They could do that. Um, they have done that in the past. When, they were, when, when we were waiting on the resolution of a budget bill, they kept accepting those, saying we may have to end up denying these, but for now we're going to reject them. Uh, I mean, accept them. This time, I don't know if they'll do that or not. And uh, it's possible that they'll see this difference that you're, you're trying to get at. Um, and that is that we're not just waiting on uh, the next funding of the government that EV, the EB-5 program was on the same cycle as. Every other time till now, as you just said, um, the expiration date of the EB-5 program was the same as the expiration date of the E-Verify program, the Religious Worker Visa program, uh, and and all of the rest of the federal budget, um, or most of the rest of the federal budget. And uh, so it was presumed and believed with, with reason from past experience that EB-5 would get renewed to the same extent that all those other things did when an agreement on the budget became uh, came in place. Most of the times when uh, there was an expiration, there was a shutdown of the entire federal government, you know, and, and there was a belief that that the government would end up being unshut and the funding would take place and EB-5 extension would be part of it and there was no reason to think otherwise. Um, this time, as you said, um, I think it was, I think it was Senators Leahy and Grassley who were able to engineer um, getting the expiration date of EB-5 in the last budget renewal or extension to September 30 and get to get the EB-5 expiration extended only to June 30. So blame them maybe for that because they were trying to force a showdown to get somebody to face EB-5 and put in their law. And part of that is because it's just really hard to get a 100-page-plus bill included in a budget rec reconciliation Nobody wants big, complicated things any more than there already are in a budget reconciliation bill. And so if you can just say EB-5 extended to the next date, that's all there is, great. If you want to put in 112 pages of complicated stuff about integrity measures, that's, that's not on the table for those big, big deals. So they, they've kind of forced uh, a situation. So blame them for that. But then blame the other guys for, uh, you know, playing chicken. I mean, this is basically, you know, the game of, you know, imagine these two cars, uh, you know, teenagers with cars and uh, driving toward each other on a on a, a two-lane road in the middle of the night, going right at each other and see who flinches before they run into each other and crash. And it's sort of similar to that. And, um, you know, I'll have to put it, hand it to the EB-5 IC contingent. Uh, they didn't flinch, and they stood their ground even at the risk of crashing everybody into the expiration. Um, so they showed they're serious. And uh, as far as whether, I mean, how this is different, I, I think the other thing that's different about this, besides it being off the cycle of the budget, is that this time a simple extension would would preserve 
the 900,000 to 1.8 million discrepancy that those guys in the big money centers hate, right? So it's always easier to get a little something done and just renew with no change. And that's what they've always been able to get done over Grassley's well, just really angry objection, right? Uh, they've been able to, to get that done. This time, they didn't want to just have a little extension. They wanted, they want change. So um, everybody wants some different kind of change, and they're going to have to get together and, and decide, you know, what everybody can live with. And uh, I think, you know, the thing that's really a big deal is that the people in the middle of this are the people who already invested, who stand to get royally screwed if they don't, if there is not a renewal in some way, so that they get covered. And uh, I, I think ultimately, everybody on both sides recognizes that and uh, is going to see to it. And I have an attitude about that very issue, and I'll go on about it if you want me to, but I'll save that for a question. Sure. Um, just, just one second. I'm, I know Priya wants to ask you about the, the federal lawsuit and the federal judgment <laughs> ruled against uh, um, but, but I'll let her ask Not that. But I, but, I, but I know, I mean, uh, just talking to the folks at IAUSA and the folks at IC and everyone in the industry, I mean, I think we all want the exact same things. I don't think there's, you know, you know, get it, you know, some folks, you know, one, one part of the program benefits them and another, uh, you know, another group, you know, they have, everyone has different parts of the program that are important to them. But at the end of the day, I think we all want the same thing. We want EB-5 to be permanent reauthorized. We want the regional center program to be permanent reauthorized. We all want additional visas. We want the program to be easier. So, you know, investors from other countries don't have to go through this 10 or 15 year wait and they can actually get a green card and, and immigrate here and bring foreign direct investment and, and also pay U.S. taxes. We all want that. I think the, the only the only difference is that, you know, I think the folks at IAUSA realize that we're not members of Congress. The members of the Senate have what they want. There's only so much, you know, we can influence and, and get them to kind of uh, vote along with what the industry wants. And then, you know, I think the folks that I see are just, you know, holding their ground and saying, hey, unless we get the additional visas, unless we get some of these other items, we don't want to we don't want to bill because, you know, maybe after you reauthorize that, you'll forget about us and you're not going to help us change some of those other things. So I think we're all we're all saying the same thing. But but I do agree with you. I think, you know, playing chicken with people's lives and, and in the program, there's 50,000 investors that are currently in the, in the, in the pipeline that, that are, you know, some you know, shape or form that this is going to affect. And, you know, as, as Priya and I know, they're all calling us, you know, everyone's, you know, everyone, no, no one really knows what's happening. No one really knows what the ramifications of this is. And it's not just the economic development program. This is people's life. These are people that are immigrating here to the U.S. Priya and I are both, you know, have immigrant families. So we totally understand that. It just makes it very, very complicated. From, well, look, from, here, here, here's just me, me railing for a second. And that is the first thing that needs to happen is somebody needs to pass a law that says that anybody who files an I-526, who invests money and files an I-526, while a law is in place that makes that eligible, should be absolutely grandfathered from any expiration of anything, right? That's the first thing that needs to happen. And shame on everybody for talking about any bill this last round that didn't include that, okay? 
Amen to that, and, and I support you on that, and I think that's something I think we all need to, to point out. So Priya, sorry I, I monopolized the, all the questions, but yeah, I know you have some questions. No, on. no, I actually, it's really interesting because that's obviously another question that I've been getting from all my investors that have already invested over the past two years who are still waiting, and they're just really, really nervous and really scared as to what's going to happen. And it would be really sad if that situation were to come into play because these are people who have planned, made plans for, for their migration, they've made plans for their children's schooling, they've you know, saved up this money, invested this money, and they're frankly very excited to be getting these green cards and then to be told that all of a sudden, you know, the program's no more, you're not going to be able to do that, would actually be really heartbreaking, I think. Yeah, Perspective. Let's let's be clear though. Nobody in the game here really thinks that there will be no legislation that ends up protecting them. Everybody believes that will happen, and Perfect. and I do too. But they th those people you're talking about just shouldn't have to live with that kind of worry. And it also is terrible to try to raise money into the United States telling somebody in a PPM that you need to tell them, look, you've got to live through all the extensions of this regional center program that it takes to get to the point that you actually get a visa, get an I-526 approval and get a visa number and get in here. Um, you, you've got to get, that law has to be extended however many times it takes to get to that point for you or you could be screwed. That, that is unreasonable to ask somebody. And if you're in the business of making laws that are, you know, designed to attract people to come here, you need to you need to change that in the next law. And Robert, I think one of the important things that you mentioned is that people need to have faith in the United States government. They need to have faith that this is they're investing a significant amount of money. I mean, a lot of these people, they're not millionaires. They're selling their homes. They're getting loans. They're putting money together for their family to get this immigration to bring their kids and you know provide for an American dream for for their kids and. And, you know, for us to, you know, go out there and raise money and, and, and tell them that, hey, there's all these uncertainties and the government can't get their act together. It's just it's just not it's not right. And, and separately, I think, you know, when this program started back in early 1990s, there's only two or three other countries that there's a similar program, investment migration. And now I think there are over 40 countries that have a similar program. And right now, the last two years, we are losing so many investors to these various other programs. And I think, you know, people need to come back and have faith in the U.S. program. If there's anyone you know, from the USCIS or Senate or anyone from the government watching, we, we just can't have investors to, you know, invest their money and, you know, come to these countries. We know, we know how many businesses and jobs immigrants have created for this country. They've, they've you know, a lot of businesses, a lot of, a lot of tech companies have been created by immigrants or, you know, people that, whose parents immigrated here. So these are the people that we want here. And, and for, for, for them to lose faith in the U.S. government that somehow, you know, their, their investment that they made two years ago now is a jeopardy because somebody's playing politics with that. I think that's got to change. That whole mindset needs to change. And we, need to, we just need to be more friendly and, and, and understanding to, to, to these foreign investors. And knowing that this is a zero-sum game, we're losing foreign direct investment to many countries in Europe right now that, you know, have, have similar programs that are much easier to, to navigate. Yeah, well I think... I think, um, I think, you know, let's spend a few minutes as well focusing on this other important topic that has come up this week, which 
has been the litigation and the summary judgment, um, which effectively has brought the price of EB-5 back to 500000 for a very limited time. So I think um, there's been a lot of rush surrounding that, and maybe we could gain a little bit more clarity as to what that actually means. So if you could just maybe, Robert, tell us a little bit, just a brief summary of what has happened with this litigation firstly, and then we could move into questions about that. Okay. So I already did talk about the regulation of 2019 that uh, increased the minimum amount to one uh, to 900000 and the n normal amount to $1.8 million. And that narrowed how the targeted employment area or the high unemployment part of targeted employment areas uh, is, is determined so that there are less places where the lower amount can be made, can be invested to qualify. So that regulation uh, was finalized in 2019. But when it was finalized, the, the guy who signed it was a kind of an acting Homeland Security Secretary appointed by President Trump, not under, not Senate confirmed under the normal process. And there's a law called the Federal Vacancies Reform Act that was designed to basically prevent the president from getting around the requirement of getting Senate confirmation of the people he appoints and just having everybody be enacting everything forever. And it's just some technicalities not worth us going into, but for whatever reason, this judge and uh, several other judges uh, in similar litigation about other types of regulations and things have ruled that that guy was not properly appointed under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. So whatever he did doesn't legally count. And so that regulation just didn't happen. It just didn't legally – it's a nullity and um, – all that happened was back in 2017 that that uh, that regulation was proposed. So what we have then is we're back to the state of what were the regulations before that 2019 regulation supposedly took effect. And that means that um, that 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 means that the minimum investment is 500000 and the if it's not in a targeted employment area, uh, the minimum the, the investment is $1 million. And very importantly, a targeted employment area that's not a county-wide or MSA-wide targeted employment area has to be shown by a letter from a state officer that's authorized by the governor to do that. Um, and you can't just show what the data is, at least by my reading. I, uh, you can't just show what the data is um, that we've been doing under the new regulations. And um, so what we've got then is for a few days here, it appears that people have the ability to file I-526 petitions based on half a million dollar investments, if they can get it in the door before that judge is persuaded to issue some kind of stay of the order or until Congress can enact something that changes the, the amounts. And so right this minute, there are a bunch of people who are, who are uh, crazily going around making deals 
you know, to make investments and um, and getting that in the door with USCIS today and maybe tomorrow. Um, it's and uh, but but here's a you know a, a very weird technicality is that all the states that had people who used to issue figure out and issue those targeted employment area letters high unemployment area letters uh, those people haven't been doing that for the last year and a half or two and they don't even you know they're they're not in place or you know everybody who wants to make this happen is needing to scramble around basically Friday and today. Um, trying to find somebody in a state agency that can issue one of these letters. Um, otherwise, they're having to warn their investors in a, you know, in the PPM supplement that they're giving them that, hey, this might, uh, this might not qualify. Your $500,000, even if everything else works out right, the lack of a state letter could be found by USCIS to be um, something that makes that petition have to be denied. That's awkward because you're supposed to include in the petition all the documents about the investment, including the PPM and the supplement. And so that document that you're submitting is actually giving a roadmap to the U.S. adjudicator to deny your case. But, I mean, trust me, they know about this issue, and they'll either decide to impose the rule as it is or they might, they might be more flexible. We'll have to see. Um, there are going to be a bunch of petitions that go in without a state letter and just with some economist letter saying this is the data and it would be qualifying under the rules, uh, you know, of gerrymandering a, a high unemployment area. But that's going on as far as regional center investments. They have to be filed by, they be, need to be in the FedEx envelope in the U.S. tomorrow, I think, to arrive Wednesday. There's a little bit of uncertainty about whether arriving Wednesday is sufficient. I think it is sufficient, but I know some people are saying it needs to go in the mail today to arrive tomorrow to make sure it gets there before the date that says that the law says it expires. Um, I, we've done a lot of these documents for people who are making these offerings and tweaking them and making them possible. I'm not representing a bunch of investors trying to do this because I'm just not interested in the frantic pressure and liability that's associated with it. Uh, but anyway, that's what's going on. After that, after Wednesday, remember the direct EV5 program lives on, and now anybody who's off then anybody who's offering a direct investment could be able to file with a $500,000 investment and a TEA letter or evidence to show the whole county or MSA is is a high unemployment area or that it's a rural area, and they could qualify. Now, we keep thinking that any minute uh, Homeland Security is going to file a motion, a, a notice of appeal of the, this decision in California that invalidated the regulations and to make a motion to the court for a stay proving why this is this stay is needed the judge in the order issued last week said in a one sentence statement i'm not ruling on the government's reference in a one sentence kind of offhand comment that there should be a stay i'm not treating that as a motion for stay basically and inviting the government to make a motion for a stay of the order so that it wouldn't take effect, so that the old regula the new regulations would still be in effect technically, 
and that would allow USCIS to reject applications that are made at the $500,000 level. And there's just a whole lot of uncertainty about that. If that stay comes, if the appeal is made and that stay is issued, it's not clear what will happen as to the $500,000 filings that will have come in in the meantime. It's possible that USCIS could reject them all, right? Very possible. Um, you know, to, to kind of understand, you know, for, for, for our audience to understand, you know, the executive agency, they can change the rules and, you know, the different parameters of the program, but only Congress can extend the program. And as the program expires on Wednesday, the agency, you know, either expires as a $500,000 program or $900,000 program. The agency has no power to extend it. Congress has to do it and Senate's not in session, so they have to come back in session and figure something out. But I have a technical question for you. I mean, um, you know, Alejandro Mayorkas, who is now the acting um, Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, who used to be the, you know, uh, acting head of the U.S. Citizenship Immigration Service. He wasn't acting. He was the or, or he was, head of the Yeah, he was, he, was the, he was the person, not the same agency that you were director of. And, um, you know, he... Was he acting uh, director. You were acting director of. But, uh, you know, he uh, had actually reiterated that even though the Trump administration had passed these regulations, that his administration, even though he was appointed by President Biden, you know, they were ready, willing, and able to, you know, re-up re these rules. And my, my question is, under the uh, you know, Administrative Procedure Act, would that, would that if, if they re-up the rules, would it have to go back to the comment and notice period, you know, go through the 90-day notice and comment period, and it takes six months to, to be re-upped? Or could they technically re-up the, the rules immediately if, if Congress were to re-extend the program? As I recall, off the top of my head, in January 2017, in the last month and really the last few days of the Obama administration, uh, USCIS issued the proposed regulation that became the final regulation. And that proposal invited the comments that are required. You know, it, it made the required invitation to, uh, for the public to give comments. I think that regulation probably was signed by then USCIS Director uh, Leon Rodriguez, if not the Homeland Security Secretary. And those should be fully valid. And <clears throat> I'm not sure why um, the current Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, uh, Mayorkas, couldn't issue a final regulation that incorporates all of the discussion about the comments uh, that the 2019 final regulation stated. In a way, that's what he already did when he recently signed a ratification in which he said, I hereby, as the Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security, ratify everything that happened and everything that's been said in the final regulation as if I am issuing them again. And why shouldn't that be sufficient? Because uh, why should we say, well, in order for this to happen, you have to, you know, burn down some more trees and publish, you know, 500 more pages in the Federal Register. Uh, of course, we don't print them so much anymore. It's all electronic. But what, you know, why is it? And I think probably the best argument on appeal would be that that ratification is just as good as issuing the final regulation again 
and why make that happen. Um, but I don't quite understand why it wouldn't be sufficient to just publish basically the same regulation again with the same comments about, or reactions to the comments and uh, signed by Mayorkas. And maybe that's what they'll do. I don't know. It could happen any second. Um, but I, apparently there are people who believe, and I, I mean, I've heard, I haven't talked to her, I've heard that the lawyer, uh, one of the lawyers for, in the firm that represents the, the plaintiff bearing uh, in that litigation believes that it's not that simple and VHS would have to do more steps. Um, I don't know the answer to that and we'll just have to see how that plays out in litigation if it happens. Um, but it's very Robert, interesting. I'm gonna ask you to speculate a little bit, so I know you're not gonna feel comfortable mm -hmm. doing this, but um, how, how much of that, I mean, you know, we hear about Bering Regional Center and that lawsuit. You know, they're not one of the major players in EB5. There are many, many major players that have been involved in on, on, on both sides of the, you know, kind of the discussions the last seven years on reauthorization. How much of that do you think uh, was, was actual damages that Bering had to bring on this lawsuit? How much of that do you think was forum shopping, thinking that this judge in Northern District of California would give them the outcome that they wanted and they picked that forum and hence the, the plaintiff that they picked to, to, to get that outcome? Well, I mean, forum shopping is as old as courts in multiple places. And uh, you know, I see this litigation as an effort by a whole section of the industry seeking to invalidate these regulations. And this happens to be a representative of that industry who, uh, for whatever reasons, was both willing and uh, kind of conveniently situated to be able to bring the lawsuit in a, in a forum where they thought it was the most likely to be successful. Do you think that the, um, the effects of what has happened this past week with the litigation, do you think that's going to have any kind of bearing on the negotiations for the authorization? I do. I just think that I think that all contributes that that and the the recent showing that the money center folks are willing to, you know, keep driving right at the other car to get what they want. All of that, I think, contributes toward the likelihood that what's going to end up happening is a new grand bargain of some type that reopens how much is invested and. Uh, and so forth. So, except for this moment where people are going to, are rushing to file five hundred thousand dollar investments, if that had not happened, um, or like if the expiration of the law had occurred before the case decision was issued, um, then I think you would have just seen a complete, an almost complete shutdown of EB five investment until the dust can settle on what is the minimum amount of investment. And I think one of the reasons that there's been so little EB-5 investment since those regulations took effect is not that just that 900,000 is so much and so inconceivably large an amount that anybody could muster to invest. I think there are lots of people out there who could pull together $900,000 and invest, but they're holding back because they think that either through some legislative change or litigation that there's going to be a change and an opportunity to invest less would be available. And here, suddenly, it seems to maybe okay. have happened. 
and and so until until we kind of have a sense of a stable situation of how much has to be invested, I think there's going to be a relative tendency to to hold back. Other than this this sudden rush of people who are desperate to slip in at 500. You know, one one thing that's interesting is you know. Um, in, in 1990, when they uh, you know passed this program, they always intended that this was going to be a million dollar program. And in the recent Senate legis you know legislation, they've they've always said you know 500,000 was too low; that the minimum needs to be a million. Uh, and you know, in, in 1993, when they did the pilot program, they also envisioned that majority of the investments would be at a million, and only a subset of them would be at the 500,000. Hence, they said that you would have to have at least 30 percent from these TEAs or, or rural areas, and they, they didn't envision that. You know, 99 or 100 percent of the program would be at the $500,000 level. So there's a little bit of, uh, you know, I think Congress has always intended to be uh, a million-dollar program, and 500,000 is too cheap to get a U.S. you know residency. But then the other side of the coin is when we have the $500,000 investment, we actually have a lot of middle-class investors that you know were putting up their home or getting loans against their property and investing. And then when the price went up to 900,000, it really made it much harder for middle-class people from other countries to invest, and it made it more of a millionaire program, which is exactly what, you know, we wanted to stay away from. We wanted it to be something that was affordable. So there's definitely two, both both sides of the coin, but but it's it's incredible. I mean, when the pro program was 500000 you know, we're getting in something like $10 billion annually, and then it screeched to a halt when, you know, the first quarter of uh, uh, the fiscal year 2020, I think there was only eight investors. You know, it's just basically the program just died but but you're right it is a major part of the part of that wasn't necessarily the ticket but so much the the, the time the timing and, and how long it took to get a green card also people's perception that this may not be permanent and there will be some kind of grand bargain bargain the price will come down well also that everybody who was thinking about it went ahead and did it before November 2019 before you know when the amount was 500,000 I mean if you publish a doubling of a price of anything uh, as a monopolistic seller, uh, you can expect that everybody who's thinking about buying what you're selling is going to suddenly buy it before the price increase, right? Um, right. But I, I would also say that I have concerns about, uh, you know, really encouraging and facilitating um, investment by a bunch of people who barely have enough money to scrape together the $500,000 investment. I mean, these are, these are, you know, risky investments. I mean, they're inherently required to be at risk. And um, I, I think, um, you know, there's a lot about our securities laws that are designed to discourage the sale of uh, investments like this to people who can barely afford it and who, who really can't afford to lose all of it. So, um, you know, I kind of think it should be a million-dollar program uh, by people who have a million dollars to spare. Uh, and and uh, you know, the, the rules don't necessarily require exactly that. And uh, I understand that people can make their own choices within the rules and technicalities. And we certainly facilitate that where we can and the parties wish to do it. But, um, you know, as a public policy, I, I don't think it's necessarily a great idea to have this program be significantly subscribed by people who can barely scrape the money together to make the investment. Priya, any final final questions? I know Robert's got to run, but uh, maybe a couple of final thoughts on on um, on what's going to happen to the EB five program, and uh, what what are some of the things investors should be thinking about? 
That that's you're now asking. <laughs> that. Yeah, sorry, Robert. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I think that within the next several months, the EB five program uh, for regional centers will be renewed, probably with some revision to one or both of the amounts involved. Um, although probably not a big difference from the 900,000 that currently it, uh, has been required under the 2019 regulations. Um, there probably will be some integrity measures that are imposed. Those don't really affect investors in the near term. They probably help investors uh, by ensuring that there's better tracking uh, and, and administration of the money they invest. Um, I don't know, you know, what constitutes a targeted employment area might or might not be changed. Um, I, I think there's a decent chance it will not be changed, but who knows. Um, I don't think there will be an increase in the number of EP5 investors who are allowed to get uh, green cards because that that's an issue that just opens up that same concern among every immigration program. Um, <clears throat> and I think once we have this legislation in place, there will be a new wave of sense of stability and uh, significant participation going forward that we didn't have before. And I think it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be back to a pretty interesting program. And I think once we come out of that, I think there may be better chances for long-term authorization and, uh, and even more numbers over time as soon as, as, as people can realize the positive economic effect that can be achieved through this thing. You know, uh, there's been, you know, north of $40 billion in EB-5 investments that have come in. Uh, lots of new taxpayers, lots of new immigrants that are creating businesses and bringing, you know, dollars to, to, to generate economic activity. And, you know, I think, you know, we, we, as an industry, there's definitely a lot of disagreements on how do we get there, but I think we, one thing we all agree is that we need more more immigrants in the country, and I think that this is a great program that doesn't cost the taxpayers anything and it adds, you know, well-needed foreign direct investment, especially at a time right now when we were post-pandemic rebuilding and, you know, unemployment rate was at 3.5% before the pandemic crept up all the way to 9.5-10%, and even now we're at 6.5%, and what better way to, to, you know, to build back the, the economy post-pandemic than you know, bring the foreign direct investment and not lose those dollars to, to other competing programs in Europe and elsewhere. I agree. Yeah. Well said. Well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. I think the, 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 the recording time of this is, is very timely as we're looking at two days before uh, the program, the EB-5 program sunsets, and we're hoping we can get this program out to our listeners so that, you know, so you can answer a lot of their questions. Uh, in one scoop instead of uh, you having to jump on the phone and answer mm -hmm. these questions individually. <laughs> okay. Thanks Thank a lot. So Priya, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks so a lot for letting me participate. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you for joining the Investment Migration Report. And as always, we hope we were able to answer all of your questions this week. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A, at stepglobalgroup.com or at Team Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.